were created to, to live in harmony with our Creator. Uh, Adam and Eve were put in the garden and they would walk with God in the cool of the day. They were created to have a perfect relationship with Him. But Adam and Eve sinned, and when they did, all of creation was wrecked. Everything got bent, everything got twisted, and that has affected everything. It affects stuff that's outside us that doesn't work, stuff like the plumbing not working. It affects things like injustices in the world. That's where they ended up coming from. But then also it affects our hearts. The distortion isn't just out there outside of us, but it goes down deep. And since that fall, when Adam and Eve ate that fruit, the default setting on our hearts changed. The default setting before the fall was live in harmony with our Creator, After the fall, our default setting became to try to run and hide from God. And there are two ways that we do that. One primary way that we hide from God is just completely ignoring his commands. He gives commands and we run the opposite direction. We say, it doesn't really matter what I do. There is no right and wrong. I'm just going to party it up, enjoy myself, and forget that God is there. So we'll hide from him that way, and that's the classic way that we run and hide from God. That's the classic way that we point our fingers at people and say, you shouldn't do that. But then the other default setting, which is equally wrong, is our tendency to try to save ourselves, to acknowledge that there's this huge gap between us and God, to acknowledge that we've fallen short, that yes, there is right and wrong, but then to try to fix it on our own. Our father Adam sewed together fig leaves to try to cover up his nakedness, and God immediately came on the scene and said, that's an insufficient covering. And ever since then, we've been trying to cover our sins in very insufficient ways, We look at these deep problems that our sinful hearts have, and we say, man, there's this huge gap between me and God. We look at Jesus and hear his offer of salvation and forgiveness through his blood on the cross, and we say, no, I got this. I can do this on my own. I can make myself good. I can clean myself up. I can obey the rules. And this is not just the way that our hearts work before we come to Jesus. After we come to faith in Jesus, we're walking with him, and we're the redeemed children of God we still have a tendency to gravitate toward one of those two extremes. To gravitate toward, it doesn't matter what I do, I can just do whatever I want, Um, there's no such thing as any kind of practical holiness or obedience. Or on the other hand, to gravitate toward this, this place where we realize how much we've fallen short, but then saying, I've got to fix this. And so a big reason that we read the Bible, a big reason that we gather together, a big reason that we have gospel-centered preaching regularly is because we need to have a venue for Jesus to collide with our hearts and restore them to the right default setting. Because on our own, when we get isolated, when we get away from the Word of God, we get away from the people of God, we always gravitate toward trying to fix it on our own or trying to ignore the commands altogether, and neither one is right. The, The right setting for our hearts is not to think that the commands don't matter, and it's not to try to fix it on our own. It's to recognize how far we fall short and then have a deep sense of need for a Savior. And then to go to Jesus and trust in what he did for us to give us right standing with God, to give us right standing with one another, instead of trying to solve it on our own. Uh, We have a tendency to retreat toward disobedience or toward rules and religion, and neither one is the right tendency. there's, There's nothing harder for us to believe and for us to continue to believe than grace. That the way that we're connected to God is not by anything we do, but by what Jesus did for us on the cross. We love to add stuff to that. We keep bringing something else to throw into that package that it's gotta be Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus something I did. Jesus plus I felt bad enough. Jesus plus I gave it enough time after I sinned and then I turned back to him. We love adding our own ingredients to grace. And so we need to gather, we need to be in the word so that we can just stop doing that. Because it's hard to keep believing that Jesus paid it all. 
It's hard to keep believing that we have no hope but Jesus, but that when we hope in Jesus, we have all the hope in the world. That belief leaks all the time, and it's because that good news, a gospel that's that good and that free for us, is almost unbelievable. I mean, we can believe almost anything else we see in the Bible, and then the last thing that our hearts want to believe is grace. We can believe in the miracles, the signs and wonders, the healings, God showing up in a burning bush. We can believe all those things. But then when we hear that Jesus and Jesus alone is enough for us, and he gives us right standing with God, and he gives it to us absolutely freely, and we don't contribute anything to that, that part of the Bible is unbelievable. And so we need to keep getting together and keep getting into the word and, and hearing from, from the Bible so that Jesus can collide with our hearts and put him back in that right setting. Uh, in the story we're going to look at in Mark, these Pharisees, the, the religious leaders of their day, they had a huge problem. Uh, they, they were the people who were establishing rules for themselves to get themselves connected to God. But we're not here today just to look at them and say, well, let's tell a story about some Pharisees who've been dead for 2,000 years and get a history lesson. We, we don't want to read through the Bible and say, look at these bad Pharisees in the Bible. They had a problem. We want to read through the, the Bible and say, the Pharisee in the mirror has a problem. The problem that these guys have is not completely divorced from me at all. In fact, I'm a lot like them. And, and anytime we read through the Bible and we see ourselves as the hero of the story, we're reading it wrong. Anytime we read through the Bible and we see Jesus colliding with somebody, which he collides with these religious leaders here, then we need to ask ourselves, how does he want to collide with me and my heart and change me? So, so let's pray that he would. Uh, Father, we, we come before you in complete need. Uh, Lord, we have, we have physical need and weakness. We don't want to focus on your word. We'd rather let our minds wander to everything else. Uh, Lord, we also have a deeper and darker spiritual need, Lord. We don't want to hear it. Uh, we, we don't want to listen. We want to ignore your commands, or we want to save ourselves and say, I got this. We don't want a Savior who claims to be our Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that you would collide with us this morning and change our hearts, set them right again, that we might be walking in right relationship with you, not on the basis of the works that we've done, but on the basis of what your cross did, not ignoring your commands, but understanding that the one who bridges the gap between us and you is Jesus. Uh, Lord, for this work to happen in our hearts, there needs to be a miracle. So I pray you would do it as we, we teach through your word and hear from your spirit this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. So Mark 7, verse 1. says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? but eat with defiled hands. So these Pharisees, these religious leaders, remember, they're looking for a way to sink Jesus' reputation. Remember, Jesus is a threat to them. Uh, he's a threat to their authority, to their power, to their money, to their influence. So they've just been lurking around, looking for some way to accuse Jesus so that they could work around him, so that they could tell everybody he's not a righteous man, he's not to be followed. They're looking for ways to destroy him. And while we as Christians probably aren't looking for ways to destroy Jesus, I think it's pretty common for us to look for ways to skirt his commands, to look for ways to, to kind of tip him and pay him off and give him a little bit so that he can't make ultimate demands on our lives. I mean, when, when we come to follow Jesus, the Bible says that he calls us to come and die. He calls us to come and give all. Everything is his when we're Christians. 
Uh, he calls us to live with such gospel intentionality that we start making decisions based on the mission that he called us to rather than just on our comfort. He calls us to serve in hard ways that aren't comfortable. He calls us to see every resource we have as given to us by God to push back the darkness around us. And, and then he calls us to, when we see all those things the right way, to respond, to give radically in our time, in our efforts, in our gifts, in our money, and, and to do that in such huge proportions that if people knew how generous we were with every resource, they would be astounded. That's the kind of radical abandon Jesus calls us to but we tend to fear what that would mean for me. If I totally yield to him, then, then he could make demands on my life that make me very uncomfortable and make me have to give something up. So we start to put parameters around Jesus. And we say, Jesus, you get 10% of my money, but the rest is mine to do what I want with. Uh, Jesus, I'll commit to serving you know, one Sunday a month and work in there, but I don't want to overcommit because I wouldn't want to, to have this huge load on me that I couldn't bear. And so we start to put all these limits and say, okay, I'm willing to fit you into my life in a convenient way, but you've got to be limited and small, and you can't be my ultimate Lord. And just like the Pharisees wanted to work around, we want to work around too. We want to limit his claims on our lives. And these Pharisees, they wanted to limit the claims that Jesus had on their lives and on the lives of the people around them, and the way they were doing it was by discrediting it. Now, this is tough to do. If you're running a smear campaign against Jesus... Um, the guy never sinned. So, so it's not like someone had this old YouTube video from his dorm days or something, and that's going to ruin his reputation. There was nothing that they could find that was actually sinful about Jesus. So when you're trying to destroy him, you have to do a couple of things. Number one, you have to lie and falsely accuse him, which they did fairly often. Number two, you have to set up a standard that is a man-made standard, not a God-made standard, standard. Show how he fell short of that standard and then accuse him of sinning because he didn't follow your rules, even though they weren't God's rules. So it's true that Jesus never sinned, so we've got to change the definition of sin, change where the bar is, and then when Jesus falls short, then we can accuse him. And so, so that's what's going on here. Uh, God had given commands to his people as far as how they were supposed to worship him in the temple. And until the time of the cross, those commands were binding, those commands were important, those commands were given to symbolize who Jesus would be for us. And, um, and so what these guys did is they took those commands of God and they expanded them. They said, we're going to make these far more reaching. We're going to make these far more of a burden. We're going to make these commands, our standard of righteousness, all these commands that we've actually added to the commands of God. So they raised the bar to a place where God hadn't put them. Um, God had said that the priests, the Levitical priesthood, when they would go into the temple, they had to go through some washings to approach God. And that command was given by God to teach us that we only approach God if we're clean. Uh, and we are naturally defiled. We need to be washed to approach God. And so, so the way that we approach God today is through the washing we receive in Jesus Christ. And that's why they did that washing. It was an important command. It was a good thing. But these teachers, they said, you know, we need to, to do more than that. I mean, if the priests need to wash, shouldn't all the Jews have to wash in the same way? And should we really be limiting it just to temple service? Shouldn't we be doing this before every meal? And this wasn't a hygiene thing. They didn't really get hygiene. This was more a matter of thinking, well, we've got to clean ourselves and wash our sins off in all these different ways. And so they would wash before every meal. Uh, they would baptize their silverware and their plates and their cups and their dishes before they would eat on them. If they went out to the marketplace and they had contact with people who were defiled with Gentiles, then they would go home and they would wash before they ate. And then even the dining couches that they sat on, probably like benches that they would sit on to eat, they would wash those 
before they sat on them to eat. So they took a command of God, which is the priest should wash before they go into the temple, and they took that to mean I should wash every time I'm about to eat a meal because I don't want any defilement to enter my body. And then they took their standards that they made up, and they said these are the rules that are binding on us, they're binding on everyone, and if Jesus isn't following these rules, then he's clearly a sinner. So Jesus confronts that. Verse 6, it says, And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus confronts a few issues here, and one big issue that he confronts is that their acts of worship, all of these washings that they're doing, are surface observances, but their hearts are far from God. They're they're actually not on a motivation, heart level, honoring God in what they do, even though on the outside, it looks like they're very clean. And Jesus' point here is that we can follow all the rules, we can obey man-made commands and even the God-made commands, but still have hearts that are far from God. These guys didn't really do it. They They didn't get that. They thought that if you obeyed the rule, then your heart was close to God. But Jesus is saying, no, you can obey and still have a heart that's far from him, just like Isaiah said you could. You know, imagine it's, uh, it's Christmas bonus time at work, and your boss is calling people into your office, and it's been a tough year at the company this year, but he calls you in and sits you down and says, listen, you are one of our best employees. Uh, I want to honor you as much as we can, but I got to tell you the reality here. We, we have no money. Uh, we, we've got 25 bucks left in the account. There is no money for Christmas bonuses this year. And so I'm giving you the last 25. This is your Christmas bonus. I know it's lame. I wish I could do more for you. Uh, Maybe we could do more in the future. I just want you to know that that's not a reflection on who you are at all. You're you're a great employee. We love having you here. And and hopefully next year we'll be able to do much better. You got your $25 bonus, but you were honored from the heart of your boss. Now imagine another scenario. It's Christmas bonus time. The company's had a good year. You get called into your boss's office and the boss says, okay, here's the deal. I I know you kind of count on a Christmas bonus as part of your pay. Uh, things have gone really well this year, and everybody knows that. I can't really hide the books from everybody. And, and there's a lot of competition out there. Other people want to hire you, and I don't want to lose you. And so I don't want to give you a bonus at all. Um, I'm kind of an Ebenezer Scrooge. I don't want to hand anything out. I don't want to be generous. But I know if I don't give this to you, you're not going to be happy, and you might interview at one of those other places. So your bonus this Christmas is a few thousand bucks. Take it, take your stinking money, and get out of my office. Now, you probably wouldn't mind. Um, you know, that's a, it, you'll take it. That's fine. You could probably forget about the fact that he didn't honor you from his heart, but he didn't. Uh, you weren't honored from his heart. On the outside, he did actually a more lavish thing than that first boss did. He gave you 3000 bucks compared to $25. But on the inside, his heart was far from you. The first boss who honored you with very little, his heart was right there with you, and he gave you everything he had. The second boss who honored you with a ton, his heart was far from you. And what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees here is that God is after your heart. He's not after the elaborate bonus that you give him. He's after a heart that's right there with him. And we can do a lot of things. We can do even great things that people would write books about with hearts that are far from God, and God isn't interested in that. In 1 Corinthians 13, 3, Paul said this. He says, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love... I gain nothing. So we can do everything. We give everything up. Give our lives for the cause that that we're in. But if it's not because we love God, it's not worth anything. 
So Jesus is really shattering their lives here by saying God is not just after your surface obedience. He's not after your rule keeping. He's going after your hearts. And while these Pharisees thought that their rule keeping uh, made them close to God, Jesus exposed how it actually drove a wedge between them and God. So how, um, how did it do that? You would think it wouldn't matter that much. If you tell your kids to brush their teeth twice a day and they brush their teeth three times a day, that's not going to drive a wedge between you and them. Yeah, it's more than I said you needed to do, but there's nothing wrong with doing more than I said you needed to do. It's not going to hurt you to brush your teeth three times a day. Um, So these guys, you know, baptize their silverware in their couches. Uh, That's weird, but it's not a sin. And we need to learn the distinction because a lot of times Christians will attack things that are weird when in reality we should just let weird go and confront sin. I mean, people are weird, and, and they, they just, they are. If you get into a grace group, it doesn't take too long for you to realize these are strange people, um, I mean, especially Christians. We're, we're a weird bunch, and weird isn't something that needs to be confronted. Everybody has weird things that they do. Uh, every church has weird things that they do. It's just that you go there for so long, you don't realize what's weird about it. I don't think we do anything weird, but I'm sure we do, and I'm sure our new guests who are here this morning could say, no, I'll tell you. Um, there's, there is some weird stuff, and I visited some where I go and there's, I say, they're doing some stuff that's completely weird, but it's not sin. I was part of a church in Missouri where when new guests would come, we would say, let's have everybody who's not a new guest stand up, and then immediately the piano would start playing, and we would sing a song to them. <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> and, and you're never going to bring a friend, but it's not a sin. You know, that's... that's <laughs> It's not a sin to be weird. So why is it that we have these weird Pharisees here doing strange things, but it seems like Jesus is treating this like it's a whole lot more than weird. It's a whole lot more than just a strange tradition. Why does he care so much? Why why does he care that they're washing? The truth is he didn't really care about their washing. If you want to baptize your couch, more power to you, buddy. Um, You know, have a good time. But here's what he confronted and this is important for us because we do a lot of the same things they do, these guys felt like it mattered. They felt like when they did the extra washing, when they baptized their couches and things like that, it wasn't just a habit or a preference or some cultural tradition that they were just following through. It wasn't just like a Christmas tree where, yeah, it's a weird uh, tradition, but we all just do it. They thought they were right if they did it. They were wrong if they didn't. They felt like this observance, this obedience to these commands that they made made them good. They felt like they were elite because they followed these rules. And what's ironic is these guys are some of the guys who are in the most trouble of anybody in the entire Bible. I mean, when Jesus is talking to these Pharisees, he says stuff like Sodom and Gomorrah was in less trouble than you guys. These guys are in huge trouble because here's Jesus and he's standing face to face. He's the only one who could save them, only one who could rescue them. He's the one who was prophesied long ago who would come and save God's people from their sins. He was their only hope and they were rejecting him. They were rejecting him, and the reason they were is because they felt so good about themselves because they were keeping the rules. These guys had a gospel that's not the gospel. They believed that if I follow these rules, God will accept me. If I follow these rules, then I'm good. If I follow these rules, then I have right standing with God. And so because they were following the rules, Jesus didn't say they weren't doing it. He didn't say they were being phonies about this case. I mean, he was saying, yeah, you guys do that stuff. But because they were following the rules, they didn't sense their need for their Savior. And when their Savior came and looked them right in the face, they said, we want nothing to do with you. John Owen said, unless we are thoroughly convinced 
that without Christ, we are under the eternal curse of God as the worst of his enemies, we shall never flee to him for refuge. These guys didn't feel like they needed to flee to God for refuge because they felt like they had God because they did the washings, because they followed the rules. But the right response to God is that we sense the weight and the depth of our sin. We sense that there's this huge gap between us and him. We recognize that we couldn't possibly fix that on our own, so we turn to him and cry out to him for mercy. Their approach to God here was smug and superior when the only right human approach to God is brokenness. And compare their approach to David's. In Psalm 51, here's David. He's committed adultery and murder. So he knows his sin. He knows the weight of what he's done. And he says this. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. He's recognized his, his disobedience, he's recognized he's fallen short, and then he goes to God and he says, I've got nothing to bring you you've got to start this process in my heart. So he starts utterly broken, totally dependent, and he says, God, my heart's dirty. I can't clean myself, and so I'm begging you to create a clean heart in me. My joy is gone, so I'm asking you to restore it. Deliver me. Save me. That's the right approach of a human being to God. David says, God, I'll never even sincerely sing your praises. I'll never sincerely worship you. I'll never sincerely follow you unless you act first in my heart. You have to redeem me. You have to change me. And then if you do, then, then I'll be able to follow you. And you see this everywhere in the Bible. You see that the right approach to God is an approach from humility and brokenness. Uh, Isaiah sees God, Isaiah 6.6. 6, he says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Peter says this, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. All throughout Scripture, we see that the way to God is not by climbing there on our own, but it's through humility recognizing the truth of our right standing with God, uh, that our right standing with God cannot possibly be earned by us. We could quote verse after verse after verse showing this, that, that the way we come to God is by saying, I'm broken. But here are these Pharisees who said, yeah, there was a gap between us and God, but now we wash the silverware, so it's cool. This little surface obedience, and they think somehow that that's enough. You know, this is like your doctor saying, you need a quadruple bypass and you need it right now. And you say, no, I'm just going to take some aspirin. And, no, that won't do it. You need something else. You need something much bigger than that. We're, we're never supposed to look at that gap between us and God and say, I got this. I can bridge this. I can handle this thing. Uh, we should read the Bible and its perfect law, its perfect commands, listen to the standard and say the same thing that Isaiah said. Man, I'm undone. I'm unclean. I'm broken. I, I don't got this. I can't fix this. And then we turn to Jesus as our Savior. But sometimes what we'll do instead is we'll follow the rules, we'll do good things, and we'll think that our observance of those rules connects us to God. 
So Jesus criticizes that. He says, yeah, you're doing these things, but your hearts are far from God. And before we move on from that, we just really have to ask, when we assess ourselves and how we're doing in our walks with God, how often are we like these Pharisees where, in reality, we're just comparing ourselves to other people and saying, I'm pretty good? Yeah, yeah I'm walking with Jesus because I'm better than that guy around me. And I promise that nothing will make our lives as cold and as unfruitful as pursuing some gospel that's not the gospel, as pursuing some tradition that will make us right with God instead of believing in Jesus. So we've got to ask, what makes us right? And do I trust in some external rules that I follow? Do I trust in some success in my life to give me this sense of worth that I'm a good person? You know, I'm, I'm clean and I'm good because I'm a good mom. I'm clean and I'm good because my house is clean. I'm clean and I'm good because I work hard. I'm clean and I'm good because I make enough money. I pay the bills. I provide for my family. I don't cheat on my taxes or on my wife. I spend enough time with my family. Therefore, because I've obeyed all these standards, some of them God's standards, some of them man-made, therefore, I'm right with God. Because that's the heart of the Pharisee. And remember, our problem is not the Pharisee in the Bible. Our problem is the Pharisee in the mirror. So Jesus criticizes their surface-only obedience and and all these standards that are not God's standards. But secondly, he criticizes the way that they take those commands and he exalts them to the level of God's commands. Verse 7 again, he says, In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So this is a a form of self-worship. It was saying these guys uh, knew that God had given commands, but then... Instead of saying God is wise, he's true, his commands are sufficient, they're enough, they said, you know, God is wise and awesome, and you know who else is wise and awesome? Me. And, and if God can make commands, then I can too. And so then they would make their rules and elevate them to the same level as the commands of God. And this was just an arrogant form of self-worship, where they say, man, you, I don't believe God's commands went far enough, so I'm going to finish the deal for him. And they taught their commands, which they taught to be just as wise as God's commands. And and Jesus said, you're taking these traditions from your elders and you're putting them on the same level of God's commands and it's arrogant and it's wrong. So notice something Jesus is doing here. Jesus is showing us that the Bible is a standard above human traditions, human teachings, and human commands. It's not that we can't have traditions. We all have traditions. There's no such thing as a life without traditions. I mean, you have a traditional time your job starts every day or school starts every day. And if you didn't have those, everything would be chaos. So, so the problem is not a tradition. The problem is when we start to say those traditions are equal with the Bible, then we're diminishing the Bible. You know, traditions and, and rules by themselves aren't a problem. But as Christians, we've got to realize that the Bible is our ultimate trump card. It's the trump card over our emotions. It's the trump card over our culture. It's the trump card over our preferences and traditions. The Bible stands above and beyond all these other practices that we follow. The Bible's ultimate for us. But when we make the way that we do things in our traditions ultimate, we're we're making a Bible for ourselves. And we're not supposed to do our devotions, open the Bible, and say, yeah, I see all this stuff, but um, I feel like I could improve on it. I feel like you know, maybe if I added some more of my own, if I wrote another book, maybe I could, I could make this a little bit better. But when we say our rules are, more, are just as valuable as the Bible, that's exactly what we're doing. Also, there are a lot of people today who will say, you know, I really like Jesus, but I don't like a lot of the Bible. But here's the thing. The Jesus in the Bible really liked the Bible. Um, The the Bible was driving him all the time. You see him all the time. When people are coming to him asking questions, he says, it's written, it's written, it's written. He keeps going back to the scriptures. 
And so to say that I like Jesus, but I don't like the book that drove him is really a contradiction. That's some other Jesus that you're making up. Um, the Jesus of the Bible is a Jesus who loved the Bible and who, who appealed to the Bible all the time as a standard. So how do we get there? How do we get to the point where, you know, at one point we started out saying the Bible's the authority, it's the word of God, that's where the commands come from. How do we get to the point where we now have other commands that we elevate to the same level of the Bible? I think it always starts subtly. And we take a command from the Bible and we ask an important question that we're supposed to ask, which is, how do I apply that today? And then the answer to our question of how do I apply that today, we start to make in our minds the standard for absolutely everybody everywhere. Um, so let's take one example. We have a command from God to be good stewards of all of our resources, uh, manage everything that we have well. And that includes our physical health. It includes our bodies. And I know this is the first Sunday of January, so we're all still on our diets. Um, thought I would hit it this week because next week that won't be the case. But um, we take this command, be a good steward of my body, and that, that is a biblical command. And, and we say, what does that mean for us today? Which is a good question to ask. And then what we'll say is, well, that means that I need to do a cardio workout three times a week. I won't drink sugary drinks, and I won't eat at McDonald's ever. Um, now, now, that's fine if you're saying that's what you do. Yeah, that's just how I live. That's our lifestyle. That's, that's what, I mean, I believe in being healthy. But when we start to elevate our application of that command to the level of God's word, we can start to do all kinds of damage. For one, we start to tie our own conscience to a command that God didn't give us. And so we'll shape our sense of I'm right. We'll connect our sense of being right to the food that we eat. And so you break your diet, and on, on the way home from church, you're in the McDonald's drive through you go home not just feeling greasy, but you go home feeling sinful. Like, oh, I am no longer a worthwhile Christian because I just had a Big Mac and, and I supersized it. And, that, and we, we start to say to ourselves, I'm wrong because I broke this command that isn't a command in the Bible. Jesus declared all foods clean. We'll see that next week as we keep going through Mark chapter 7. So, so there is a command to be a good steward of your body, but that command shouldn't ever lead us toward absolute fanaticism because fanatics don't end up being good stewards. Fanatics end up going to extremes and then reacting from them. You know, it's kind of like when you go on that really extreme diet and you say, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm cutting out fat and sugar and uh, carbs and, and, and happiness altogether. And so there, there will be no happiness in my diet. And that, that's the way it's going to be this year. And instead of ever enjoying my food, I'm going to eat six small cups of dry, low-carb oatmeal a day like a gerbil. And, um, and I'm only going to commit to that for life. And we make that commitment, and then we break it. What ends up happening is we do that for three days, and we go crazy, and the next thing you know, we're at the Burger King drive-thru. I need a Whopper, no two. Um, I double up on the fries. There's always 2014. Um, I'll, I'll get there eventually. I, eventually, I'll, I'll get back to my diet. We end up seesawing between extremes when we be fanatics. And, and so what we need to learn to do, when we set standards for ourselves, and we all have standards for ourselves that are not in the Bible, it's not a wrong thing. I have standards for my home, standards for how I live that are not necessarily from the Bible. If they're not from the Bible, we have to be open to breaking those commands when there's a greater purpose. You know, if you say, this year, I'm going to, for the most part, cut out sugary drinks. That's, that's fine. That sounds like a healthy thing to do. But if you're sitting down with a bunch of people, and, and there are five guys, and they've got Mountain Dew there, and you say, I'm not going to drink it in fellowship with you guys because 
I am, I'm better than that, or I've got this standard that can never be broken for any purpose, you end up being just a, a moralist and a legalist and really not a lot of fun. We should be willing to break commands that are not in the Bible. Um, if you feel like you're a good person because of the way you eat, I think every once in a while it would be a really good spiritual discipline to go to McDonald's. Like, not all the time, but if you feel like I'm good because of how I eat, just go get a Big Mac with extra cheese and uh, have them throw an extra scoop of lard on there. Eat it with Thanksgiving just to remind yourself that you're not awesome. <laughs> like, just, just to be able to say, what I eat doesn't make me awesome one way or another. And so, so we need to, when we've got these commands, we need to be willing to break them. Because if our conscience is tied to a command that's not a command, we can have a false sense of guilt that does no good for our spiritual lives. I'm on a diet right now. I don't know if you can tell. I'm bitter about it. Um, <laughs> secondly, what we'll do is, is we'll go and we'll take these commands that we're following, and then we make those commands binding on other people. And we start to look down at others. Oh, you went to McDonald's as a Christian? You, you went to McDonald's? And we start to feel like we're just a little bit better. We start to quietly judge people. We start to divide the body of Christ into strata, where we've got the elite over here who follow these commands, and then some people who aren't as mature as us yet. They don't have all the same rules that they follow. And then we end up getting frustrated with people over things that are not biblical commands and ignoring the ways that we're really sinful. And we get frustrated with our, our wives over the way that they fold the towels while we ignore the ways that we sin against our wives and our attitude toward them all the time. We get frustrated and mad at things that aren't Bible, and we totally ignore the ways that we're breaking Bible. And that's not a good thing for us to be doing. When we turn our rule-keeping into a basis for condemning other people, we just become snobs. And, and Christians shouldn't be snobs. Uh, a snob is someone who sets up a command that's outside the Bible, follows that command, and then looks down at other people who don't follow that command. So, so whether you're a beer snob, or a food snob, or a health snob, or a car snob, or a music snob, or a literature snob, or a movie snob, or education snob, or parenting practices snob, or a theology snob. We can take all these things, some of them good, and load them into our lives and then use them as our standard for being more awesome than everybody else. And usually the standards we pick are the ones we feel like we're doing pretty good at. The ones we feel like we've arrived. And that shouldn't be happening among us. We should be people who are right with God and right with one another because of what Jesus did for us, not because we're following these man-made self-worship laws. Now, I think we should make Christ-centered decisions about everything we do with our lives, between the food we eat, how we educate our kids, uh, where we live, how we spend our money, how we give. We should make Christ-centered decisions about all those things, but we have to recognize the difference between commands and traditions. So, so we can become snobs, we can bind our conscience to the wrong things, but these guys also went beyond all that. These guys went farther and did even more damage with their sin. Listen to verse 8. Jesus said, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So Jesus is using some real sharp language here. When he says that they're rejecting the command of God, he uses a word that in other places is translated divorce. And these are the Pharisees. These are the Bible guys. These guys know their Bibles. These guys went to seminary. These guys know the verses. They've got a lot of it memorized. And Jesus stands in front of them and he says, you're divorcing the word of God. 
That would be a shock for everybody who's around them to hear. And then the way Jesus says it is with a lot of sarcasm. He says, you know what you're really good at? Being bad. <laughs> this is like saying, you are excellent at being lazy. You, you're a fine liar. You're, you're great at that stuff. He says, you guys are really, really, really perfect and expert at divorcing the word of God and setting up your own tradition. And then he gives an example. Verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So there's, there's the command from God. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. And thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So here's what this Corban thing was. Uh, the, the way it worked is if you lived in a house and you owned your house and you wanted to be really generous and uh, donate that to the temple, you could do that. And you could actually do that while you were still alive. You could say, my house is Corban. This is going to be devoted to God. This is given to the temple. This is their resource. And then the temple in return would say, you're allowed to continue to live there for the rest of your life. So you can keep using that place. It's still yours operationally, but it's the temple's property. So you basically deed it over to the temple, and they let you keep living there. And people would do that to skirt the commands of God. By itself, that's not necessarily a bad thing to do, but they would use it as a way around what God had really commanded them to do. They'd made this policy of korban, which wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but then imagine your parents are aging. They need someone to provide for them, take care of them, and they come to you and they say, hey, I really could use your help. Well, biblically, we're supposed to honor our mother and father. And, and I think when our parents get old, we should make sure they're cared for. It doesn't mean they have to live in a mansion, but we are responsible for them when they get older. And if you say, you know, all I've got is this house, normally I'd sell it to try to provide for you, but it's Corban. You'd be able to get out of what you were commanded to do, honor your parents, because of this policy, this tradition that was set up. And Jesus said, you guys are great at doing stuff like that, and you have many such things that you do. You, you have these policies and loopholes around the word of God, and we can look at them and say, man, that's shady. Why would you ever do that to your parents? But man, we will do the same kind of things. We'll take the commands of God, we'll build loopholes around them, and we'll disobey commands because of our policy, because of our standards. You know, for example, when we set up some rules for ourselves that aren't necessarily in the Bible, we will break a clear command of the Bible, which is not to gossip, and we'll gossip about someone who's breaking my rules. Did you see him? So I'm going into a bar last night. So I'm clearly gossiping, which is clearly sin. That guy's doing something that's not clearly sin in the Bible. I, I've just disobeyed myself. You know, we'll refuse fellowship with people. You know, people offend us because they broke one of our rules. Instead of them offending us because they're genuinely sinning against God, they offend us because they broke one of our rules. So in response, we refuse to be warm and loving. We refuse to be hospitable. We refuse to get close to them. And so these standards that we're holding on to actually separate us from those other people. We're breaking the commands of God toward fellowship and hospitality because they're not following our rules. Or sometimes we'll sin and then provide a very spiritual-sounding reason for our sin. You know, you say, my spouse and I, we're, we've kind of grown apart, and there really isn't a, a, you know, a biblical reason for this divorce, but we're getting divorced. Well, why is that? Well, we feel like God's leading us in separate ways. That's just kind of baptizing disobedience and calling it something that's not. Or a guy says, you know, I was thinking of going out and looking for a job, but I decided to live by faith instead. 
Well, the Bible says you're supposed to provide for your family. Um, like it says that if anyone doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. So how is it that making a decision to not go out and do what you can to provide for your family look like faith? But we call it faith. We, we baptize it and say, this is, this is okay. Or we'll say things like, you know, I really don't need to go to church because I've got God and I've got the Bible, so I don't need human teachers and pastors. Okay, well, the Bible sets up human teachers and pastors. It says that we do need them. And it's so clear in there that if we don't see it, we really need a human teacher and pastor to sit us down and show us that. And so, so what, we, what we tend to do is say, no, I'm more spiritual than the standards of God. We all, like these Pharisees, we have some fine ways of divorcing God's commands and setting up our own. It does damage in our hearts, it does damage in our community, it does damage in our fellowship, it just does damage in the way that we live. The big application of all this, is, the big application every week, is that God is after our hearts. And the way that our hearts are made right with God is not by the good works we do, it's not because we follow rules, it's not because we obey, it's because of what Jesus did for us. Now, is there an important place for obedience in the Christian life? Absolutely. That always flows from a life of, of knowing Jesus. When he's transformed your heart, there's obedience that does flow out of that. But the way that our hearts get connected to God is not by our obedience. It's not by those things that we do on the surface. It's 100% by the cross of Jesus Christ. And our tendency is to skirt the cross, forget about our Savior, and say, I got this. I'm good because of something else that I'm doing. I'm good because of some other practice that's in my life, and there is nothing, nothing, nothing that connects us to God but Jesus and his cross. So we hear the commands from God. We're supposed to recognize that they're true, that they're binding. We're supposed to recognize that we fell short, and instead of saying, I got this, we say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, save me. Jesus created me a clean heart. Jesus, restore my joy. Jesus, forgive me. Then I'll sing your praise. Then I'll obey. Then I'll, all the good works will flow out of that. But I can't do anything to connect myself to God. And that's why we need a Savior. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need to proclaim him. That's why if you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, I want you to know that the only way for you to come to God is not by doing good things. Also, you can't ignore him forever. But the way you come to God is just by recognizing how huge that gap is between you and God and trusting in Jesus as your Savior. Trusting that he died for you and was buried and rose again and turn from sin and unbelief, turn from any attempt to save yourself and trust in Christ. And if you're here and you're a Christian and you've been here walking with Jesus for a long time, as long as you can remember you've been following Christ, don't let your heart gravitate toward either of those wrong extremes. Don't think that it doesn't matter what you do, but also don't think that you can fix your problem. Don't think that you, you can't commune with God and worship God because of what a terrible week you had or because you've fallen short as a mom, a dad, a provider, because you've fallen short morally. Don't think that the, you could, the only way you'll ever be right with God again is if you clean up your act. What makes us right is Jesus. And so if you come in here like most of us do, saying this was a bad week, I wasn't obedient, I wasn't faithful, I wasn't focused, then confess that that's true and believe in the cross. Believe in the cross of Jesus, that he died and was buried and rose again for you. Turn from sin and unbelief and all self-salvation and turn to Jesus. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. Christians, I think it's good for us to just ask ourselves the question, what makes me good? 
What makes me right with God? What makes me a good Christian? If the answer for us there is anything but Jesus, our hearts are getting off track. So let him collide with that. Let him collide with that and change that again and confess the way that you've maybe subtly trusted some other saviors. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, we're glad that you're here. You're welcome here and you're welcome to be here as long as you want and the doors of our church are open to you. But I want you to know that our message is not that people who are immoral need to turn from that and be moral. And that'll make you a good Christian. Our message is the gospel message, which is the message that we're all immoral and so we need a savior. So Jesus Christ came and he died and he was buried and he rose again for us. Our message is not that you need to pick up religious practices. Our message is that you need a savior. You need Jesus. And so we call people who are rule keepers and think that their rules connect them to God to turn from that attempt to save themselves and trust in Jesus. We call people who are rule breakers and think that they can run away to stop running, turn from their sin and their unbelief and trust in Jesus. And that's what we invite you to today. We invite you to recognize the sin and brokenness and trust in the cross of Christ. Trust that when Jesus died and was buried and rose again, he paid the price for you so you could be forgiven and have everlasting life. We encourage you to cry out to him. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it's not a matter of just saying certain words in your heart, but it's a matter of saying, like David did, God, I'm broken, I'm dirty, I'm, I, I need a clean heart. I turn to you, I turn from my unbelief, I turn to your cross and I ask you to cleanse me and fix me and make me right with you. And if that's the genuine cry of your heart, he cleans you, he saves you, he rescues you.